This is weird shit, me mom says. Episode dozen. It's 12. I'm Jules Creighton. And I'm Cece Alice. How's it going this week? Uh, good. I feel like I'm in. I feel like I'm like in high speed mode right now because I was trying to get home really, really fast from school shopping so that uh, we could record because I was late to our date. Honestly, you're not really that late. You usually are super late. So when you said that you were running late, I was expecting to be waiting for like an hour, and it really was like just a few minutes. Not bad at all. Yeah, like. Fuck yeah, woo, do, 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 do. That's, it's exciting. It is. So, like, what's new with you this week? Um, everything was, uh, man, like, so much happened this week. Um, like, I got a lot of stuff done at work, lots of writing, 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 and, you know, some, some stuff in the family, some, you know, moving around of kids and whatnot. Um, and then last night was kind of fun. Um, me and the doc went to go meet up with uh, some of his old cop buddies um, that were in town. And so I got to hear some some really fun old stories from, from when they were out on patrol. And I got to hear some cool murder stories. Um, not cool. They were talking about homicides and stuff. It's very interesting I get very interesting uh, company sometimes. So did that. And then today, Lucy and I went shopping. How about you? I went to Iowa for work because we purchased another business there. And it was an interesting week. But the most exciting part about it was that I got lost in a cornfield on my way home. Oh. Yeah. I just blindly followed the Google Maps, and it took me on dirt roads through cornfields. I almost ran out of gas. I lost cell phone service, and luckily, I found a Casey's convenience store to find a map to get me home. It was pretty rough. (laughs) I'm sorry that happened to you. So, see, I thought that you were going to say that the thing you should have been most worried about is the thing that I would have been most worried about, other than running out of gas, um, would be murderous children named Malachi coming out of the fucking corn. Um, yeah. Because Iowa. Yeah, I was listening to And That's Why We Drink at the moment, and there was a creepy story that was being told, and it just, it got me in the right mind frame as I was driving through that corn, and it really got pretty freaky. Well, I knew you were going to Iowa, and I was like, oh, dear Lord, so I'm sorry that happened to you. Just in general. So what are you going to... Oh, one more thing we have to say on here. So Kira, my oldest daughter, has made a request that that we have a different name for her on the, the podcast. What is that name? Just shout out to her. Well, she was jealous about another influencer calling their daughter Concrete instead of their name. <laughs> So she decided to look up a list of 
fucking weird names. And the one she landed on was Angle Rice. Angle Rice? Yep, it's a fucking weird one. No, I'm not doing it. Her name is Concrete Kira. I can get down with that. That's it. Sorry, bitch. You're Concrete Kira. All right, moving on. What are we talking about today, CC? I'm going to talk about a 100-year-old double homicide. Oh. Yeah. That sounds intriguing. It is. And there's going to be torrid affairs. And yes. No. Yeah. And crazy people. And a mule okay. named Jenny. Yeah. So, Jenny, Jenny. Who can I turn to? Jenny, Jenny. Yeah. So, you ready to get into this? I'm ready. All right. So, we're going to go back to 10 a.m. on Sunday. Or, I don't know if it was a Sunday. I just decided it was Sunday, September 16th. <laughs> what? <laughs> 10 a.m. on September 16th, 1922, (laughs) we have 15-year-old Pearl Bomber and her 23-year-old boyfriend, Raymond Schneider, walking out. Well, then. Yeah. Walking on DeRussi's Lane, which is a well-known lover's lane in New New Brunswick, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. So... Well, I was hoping that the next part of this story would result in the apprehension of Raymond Schneider for being a statutory rapist. It doesn't. Doesn't. Didn't. Because that probably wasn't naughty back then. No, it wasn't against the rules. Of course, like I did look it up and I couldn't find out what year, but apparently, you know, like sometime between 1920 and the 1800s, it went from the age of consent being 10 to 12 to being what 1850s i guess like 10 to 12 was an age of consent so that's um are you fucking kidding me extremely disturbing yeah and oh my god yeah yeah and now the age of consent in new jersey is 16 so i'm guessing 1922 15 would have been okay for them so okay I have thoughts on that, but let's just, let's move on. Um, The the real issue here is that they happened to cross a pair of dead bodies under a crab apple tree. That escalated? That did escalate. So the dead bodies were that of 41-year-old Reverend Edward Hall, an Episcopal priest, or reverend, um, and and the 34-year-old woman named... Eleanor Mills. Um, she was a church soprano. The, at the 34-year-old scene. woman. The 34-year-old woman. I had a really hard time saying that for whatever reason. She was a church <laughs> choir soprano at the church where Edward Hall was the reverend. So uh, they were laying on their backs, seemingly posed next to one another, with their feet pointing toward the crab apple tree that they were left under. So imagine their feet like going toward the tree and they're on their backs laying there next to each other. It just makes me think of like puppet feet. Like, I don't why know. Why are their feet like laying on the ground? Like that's weird. Well, because their okay. bodies are laying on the ground. 
They're just dead bodies on the ground. Just that they're placed next to each okay. other weirdly. So, so yeah. So let's talk about. God, sorry, my little lights are going out. This little light on mine. That's why. Okay. So, just <laughs> me, me singing church songs from Sunday school in this in this churchy scene. Um. So, in my head, I was singing like a soprano. I was like, I have puppet feet. <laughs> So they didn't they didn't have cell phones, of course, but they get the police called out there and things get tricky. So DeRussi's Lane is on the border of New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is in Middlesex County, and Franklin Township, New Jersey, mm-hmm. which is in Somerset County. So apparently it took some time for them to determine which police force was responsible for the investigation. And while they were getting their shit together, they didn't secure the crime scene. And so press showed up and some onlookers showed up and they just like they trample the scene and they they just kind of look around and are touching shit. And just it's it's not a good situation. And so eventually they get it straightened out and they start investigating and they determined that both victims had been shot in the head with a 32 caliber pistol. Edwards was shot once over his right ear, and the bullet exited through the back of his head. I'm going to tell you a little bit about everything else that was going on with Edward before I move on to Eleanor. So Edward had a Panama hat, which is like the kind of hat that our grandpa used to wear, the fancy 1920s guy hat. So it's placed over his face. Oh. And the gunshot wound was covered by the hat as well. And then on top of it, his calling card was placed. So like a business card kind of thing. Because he had like a card he would carry around because he's a he's a minister. So if he wanted somebody to get in touch with him, they could call him and have the phone number. Because you can't put him in your cell phone. I didn't contacts. know that the ministers like walked around with, with calling cards. But well, okay, that Edward, makes sense. Edward was a little bit fancy. We'll, we'll talk about Edward later on and kind of what his status was. But... Um, he was wearing his glasses. Uh, his right arm had been, like, posed, basically. So positioned to touch Eleanor's neck. There was a small oh. bruise in the tip of his ear. And there were abrasions on his what? left pinky finger and his right pointer finger. And there was also a wound about okay. five inches below his kneecap on his right calf. Um, so basically, it looked like oh. he kind of got roughed up a little bit before he was shot. How do they know they have a bruise on his ear? I know. It's so weird. And they didn't tell me, like, which ear. So I'm like, is it the ear that he was shot right above? Like, did he get a bruise from the bullet grazing past it? Does that happen? You know, I wonder these things to myself. Or was it just, like, gunpowder that looked dark, that looked bruisey? I don't know. I'm not yeah, really I've sure. I've never had a bruise on my ear. Okay, but okay. I could try to see if I can bruise mine. It probably wouldn't take much. Um, can I bruise your ear? Well, I take blood thinners. I feel like you could bruise anything on me. <laughs> it kind of made me, like, grit my teeth. Like, I thought about I was like, ah, I'm going to get your ear like Grandma yeah. used to do to, to our <laughs> if cousin. If you can get me from yeah. there. Oh, I just knocked the cord on my microphone okay. while I'm taking a drink. Right. Sorry, I just needed to, to wet my mouth a little. So, don't the, say that. Gross. Okay. <laughs> the watch he always wore was missing. 
Um, but he did have change in his pocket and his wallet was found nearby. So it didn't seem like he was being robbed. Now let's okay. talk about Eleanor now. So Eleanor had been shot three separate times. So once was over the right mm. eye. Once was over the right temple and once over her right ear. In addition to these shots, her throat had been sliced from ear to ear, nearly decapitating her. Ooh. Yeah. (gasps) They found maggots in the neck wound, which to them signified that she had been there for more than 24 hours. So some entomology going on there. Yes. Some entomology going on there for sure. Um, She was wearing a blue dress with red polka dots on it, black silk stockings, brown shoes, and a brown silk scarf was wrapped around her throat where it had been slit. She had a blue velvet hat that was near her body on the ground, and there was a bruise on her arm, a small cut on her lip, and her left hand was positioned to touch Edward's right thigh. Oh. Yeah. So it's sounding to me like crime of passion. Somebody is more upset at Eleanor than they are with the preacher guy. Yeah, and there may be some indication why. So there there were what appeared to be love letters between the two of them scattered Mm. on the ground between them. Were they scandalous letters? Yeah, I think so, because they were both married to other people who weren't weren't each other. So weren't each other. Yeah. Okay. So this is the Torrid Love Affair. This is the Torrid Love Affair. And letters were they written to like was there some like from him to her or were they all like from her to him him to her like because that would tell us a little bit i think i'm I'm assuming it was a mix they didn't tell us what it was because like if it was all letters from her to him you would think it would be like maybe his wife or something was like what the fuck are these I know, right? Um, I mean, it, it very well mm-hmm. could have, and I don't know that we will would really ever know, but I think we kind of know. So okay. I can tell you why in a little bit. So please do. Yeah, like I said, much of the crime scene was really heavily disturbed by the media and other onlookers after the bodies were discovered. Um, even that calling card that was placed on Edward's hat had apparently been passed around the crowd there. So adding about a dozen fingerprints what? to what could be a really important evidence. Can you believe that? Like people are just touching the hat? Like a murder scene and people are just like grabbing the calling, like grabbing evidence essentially around a crime scene. It's just insane to me to imagine. looky lose. I know. I know. And then they're more than looky lose. They're like sticky fingers. Yep. And people were trying to collect souvenirs. I'm honestly surprised that nobody took the calling card. They didn't find a murder weapon there, but there is some speculation that it could have been there and it was picked up by one of the onlookers, which is super fucked up. Was there a calliophone? There was not a calliophone. Hot dogs? The atmosphere does become somewhat of a carnival later. Uh, but not right okay. away. Just a lot of people there. So I was just checking. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty rough. And so I do want to talk a little bit more about the victims 
and who they were. So, okay. Edward was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1881. He had middle-class parents who um, weren't, you know, wealthy, of course, but they were comfortable. He obtained a degree in liberal arts from the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute. In- institute. I said institute. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the institute. way that you said that. Yeah, I don't know what I was doing there. It's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he got... You got a, batch, uh, uh, a degree in liberal arts from the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute and then attended the General <laughs> Theology Seminary in Manhattan. And he became a reverend. So the first place that he was placed, the first church he was placed in, was in New York. And then eventually he was placed in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. And at the age of 30, landed at St. John the Evangelist Church in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And that was in 1909. And this is where he met Francis Stevens, who taught in the Sunday school there. He married Francis pretty quickly. She was seven years older than him in 1911. So he was 30. She was 37. And I'll tell you guys. She was a cougar. Yeah, she was a little bit of a cougar. And we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into who Francis was later on in the case. Okay. And then we have Eleanor. So Eleanor's name was Eleanor Reinhardt Mills, and she was born in 1888. And there was not any information that I could find as to what kind of parents she had, but she did marry James Mills in 1903 at the age of 15. So I guess 15-year-olds are up for grabs oh. everywhere and and. and Pretty much anywhere mm-hmm. and anywhere. Um, I don't Literally. know. Yeah. I, I don't know how old James was at the time. Um, they had two kids together, though, Charlotte and Daniel. I'm assuming that they were adults or teenagers, at least, based on the fact that she was 34 when she passed away and she got married at 15. Uh, she may have been married because, I mean, like, maybe she got married at 15 because she was pregnant or planning to have kids soon. But I think usually, I think still in 1922, they wouldn't have got married so young, right? If they weren't. Trying no, to get they, kids right away. I feel like they probably would have. Like, does it does it say like what their, like what was their, ethnical background? What was their? I think that they. I were don't know just, what that has to do with anything. I think they were just basic white people. Oh, because there are other characters I mean, in the no, story that I, I like. I meant like learn about their nationality. Like, what if they were? You know, like like they're. Like if their families just came over from Europe from from somewhere, you know what I mean? Like maybe it would have been more common or something. Yeah. I mean, they both were born in the United States, I think. So, yeah, I don't know. Okay. All right. Actually, it doesn't say what Eleanor was, but they, I feel like they would have talked about it. I don't know. We'll see. Um. So... Whatever. She's got kids. She's got a husband. Um, things she liked to do were she really loved to read romance novels. And she okay. liked to sing in the church choir. She'd been in the okay. church choir for quite some time. And she was also a pillory. A pillory. A pillar. <laughs> a I was pillar. like, what the fuck is a pillory? <laughs> she was a pillory. <laughs> Can you talk tonight? Like, what's your deal? A pillar of the ladies auxiliary. 
Um, and she went to church nearly every single day for different activities. She really got into church stuff. And really? Yeah. Okay. Um, because I'm not a church person, I had to look up and see what a ladies auxiliary is. And the Googs told me that <laughs> it's a women's group that supplements the work of an organization. So in a church, ladies can take on roles such as reaching out to the larger community, working within the church, and fundraising. And apparently there has to be a special name for it because they're ladies. So she was an auxiliary pillory. Or maybe there's a men's auxiliary too. I didn't I didn't look into that. I'm always it sensitive to gender issues. No. Okay, so yeah. Okay. Go on. So Based on the crime scene and the large amount of blood soaked into the soil, it was eventually determined that the crime did take place in Somerset County and not in whatever the other one was. Uh, Middlesex County. It wasn't Middlesex. It was in Somerset. I was like, it had something to do with sex. Middlesex. So the middle of sex. And okay. so the police began to investigate. Like Middle Earth sex. Yeah. The, the, the Somerset police began to investigate and they estimated that the couple had been killed around 10 p.m. on September 14th, which would have been a day and a half before the bodies were discovered. So quite some time. So they were on Lover's Lane at about 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't their, didn't their spouses wonder where the fuck they were? We'll get into that in a or little bit. Or did they know? They might have. They might have. Um, so, obviously, given the presence of those love letters that were scattered between the bodies, the police really needed to determine, like, what the relationship really was between Edward and Eleanor. So, it had been unclear how long things had been going on, but it didn't take much investigating for them to determine that the relationship was a very poorly kept secret in the circles around Eleanor and Edward. Uh, they were unsure when the affair started. People didn't know exactly, but it was pretty clear that people were talking about the fact that beginning in 1919, so three years earlier, Edward had begun calling on Eleanor every single day. So Edward's basic mm. job, like we'll talk a little bit about kind of what his life was like, but he did call on parishioners really often. It was just a thing that he did. And apparently Eleanor was a stop every single day. And Eleanor also went to the church oh every single day, too. So a lot, a lot going on there. So um, the relationship and so. the presence of the love letters would leave police to question a spouse or two, of course. And before right? I get into all of that, I did, I just want to take a minute to read one of these love letters to you. Because you're so romantic. I'm so romantic. And... <laughs> so silly um this letter that is a lie she is not a romantic at all yeah yeah so maybe this isn't as funny to people who are romantic but i just i mean like i don't want to make like there's no reason that anybody should ever be killed by another human being i just or like people that believe in the death penalty or not whatever i guess that's one thing but having an affair doesn't justify being murdered and I just want to say that so I'm not trying to be disrespectful of her just this is this is interesting to me so the love letter reads like this 
I know that there are girls with more shapely bodies, but I do not care what they have. I have the greatest of all blessings, a noble man, deep, true, and eternal love. My heart is his, my life is his, all I have is his. Poor as my body is, scrawny as they say my skin may be, but I am his forever. So Eleanor was, I think she must have been kind of like a, a like a thin woman with not a lot of meat to her or something. She didn't have a booty. I don't think she had a booty, but so she could have, she could have fit in today. And apparently she was too scrawny. So people just thought whatever about her, but but that's that's her love letter. So I think that does give us like an idea though of of the romantic ideals that she had with reading romance novels and like what she was looking for in the world. It's weird that she didn't say like she didn't say I have you. She was like I have a man. I don't know, it was just it was oddly written, but maybe that's just a sign of the times. Maybe they wrote like poems back and forth to each other like it was more like like poems rather than letters. I'm going to write a poem to Doc tonight. You would. That's what I'll do. You guys, sometimes, sometimes I would Jules not. and Doc, they get like, uh, they get like stuck, like, like gazing into each other's eyes and like, it's like nobody else is around <laughs> and, and I'm just like, hey guys, I'm talking here and they're just, they're just staring into each other's eyes lovingly and it's so weird. But I love my husband. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to sidetrack for a minute and just describe to you all that that I was the minister in Jules and Doc's wedding. They, I offered. Yes. Yeah. They, they were talking about getting married at night at first, which didn't end up happening. But they were talking about where they were going to find somebody to perform the ceremony at night. And. Mm-hmm. Me being the, like, severe, unromantic person that I am and them being the severely romantic people that we are. Probably not, like, Eleanor romantic, but pretty romantic. And I jokingly decided to offer up to become a minister on the internet. And (laughs) we all laughed. And then, like, a couple weeks later, they came to me and asked me if I would really do it. And so I did. And, And I've done a, like, I've done two weddings now or three three weddings now yeah three weddings I think you did three you you've done yeah I did now I did my friend's wedding and then I did concrete Kira's wedding as well afterward damn good job yeah I did I did I feel like I do a pretty darn good job you do you get to know the people and you're not romantic but you're funny yeah, I yeah. feel like I find romantic things out in the world and incorporate them in, though. Yeah, sure. There's, like, some yeah. romantic sentences in and some humor, so. Some romantic sentences. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so let's get back to the story. So, of course, okay. given that there's an extramarital affair going on, we, we do need to look at the spouses. And, of course, you're always going to look at the husband, right? And so... The first suspect is James, who is Eleanor's husband, and Mm -hmm. they decided to talk to him right away, 
he relayed to them that Eleanor had left their home at 49 Carmen Street in New Brunswick at 7.30 p.m. on the night of the murder. He knew that she was going to be meeting up with Edward. And that seems crazy, except for that she told him that she was going to meet up with Edward because the year prior, she did have a kidney removal surgery that they couldn't afford. And they finally had the money to pay him back, so they had arranged for her to meet up with Edward to pay the money back from the surgery the year prior. At it night? Is, it, yeah, it's still kind of suspect to me because like, she was at the church every day anyway. Um James also mm-hmm. worked at the church as the church sexton, which is a church officer who takes care of the property and performs related minor duties such as ringing of bells for services and digging graves. So basically... That's a com- wide variety. It is. They kind of do a lot of stuff. So James and Edward worked together. And so why couldn't James just give him the money? But he was just like, well, they're going to meet to to pay back that money. And uh, James also claimed to not have any knowledge of the affair, despite everybody else in the world knowing about it. Um, He even told the police that Edward was his best friend. So he's so stupid. Yeah. And that's what the police thought, too. They thought he was a simpleton. Uh, But but they did think that James probably knew more than he was letting on. Uh, They suspected it might have been because Edward was really quick to give money to Eleanor And so that might have led him to put up with it. So James had never made more than $38 in a week. Like that's that's the top earnings he ever had, which would be about $630 a week now, which would equate down to $15.75 an hour. And that's with a family to feed because she's not like working outside of the home. They had two children, a wife, and $15.75 probably doesn't cut it. Uh, They lived in a rundown frame house. Things weren't going great financially. And it was probably kind of difficult for James to appeal to Eleanor's overly romantic ideals. That's my guess on $15.75 an hour or whatever that would have been uh, back in the day. So he kind of put up with it. There also were reports that Eleanor did have multiple affairs over a period of time. So I think that... I mean, this is almost 20 years like into their marriage. Like with other dudes? Yeah. So this is about 20 years into their marriage. I think that he he probably just, he had given up on it. So, yeah. And I, I saw differing accounts as to whether or not James ever reported Eleanor missing. I saw in some places that he hadn't, but then I found another quote saying that, um, you know, during the time where she was missing leading up to the finding of the bodies, that he had questioned aloud whether or not Edward and Eleanor had eloped. So he probably did know. And and I apologize if that just I hit the microphone with my finger on accident. So there might have been a boop. Um, so this all seems pretty suspicious. However, James did have a really decent alibi during the time leading up to the murders. Neighbors saw him starting some woodworking outside and then they all claimed to hear him hammering nails throughout the time that it occurred. So he was apparently working on some projects outside of the house pretty late into the night. Maybe he was smart and he developed some sort of an invention that would hammer things in the garage very loudly. It could be. It could be. But they said he was a simpleton. And I don't know. There's there's some other people that might they be They said he was a well. simpleton. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. Yeah. So, Poor James. Like I mentioned earlier, um, Edward... 
had married Francis in 1911 when he was 30 years old and Francis was 37. So we've got the cougar situation going on. So this age gap and the fact that the nicest thing anybody ever said about what Francis looked like was that she wasn't wholly unattractive. She wasn't wholly unattractive. Yeah. So basically she she wasn't a looker. And I did see some newspaper articles that were really inappropriately rude about comparing Eleanor and Francis to one another, like putting their pictures next to each other and saying, like, there's no, obviously he would want to be with Eleanor. So even even though Eleanor thought she wasn't a looker. Like, what did Ed look like? Not great, in my opinion. I think that everybody's got things about them like it's always in the eye of the beholder but for me I don't don't think he would be like considered classically attractive I guess okay yeah so there was some speculation that he married her not for love but for wealth and status because these people man yeah through her mother and her aunt Frances and her two brothers, Willie and Henry, were heirs of the Johnson Surgical Supply Fortune, which was approximately about $2 million back then. So $32 million today. And they they all shared that money together. So she and Edward ended up living in their family home where she grew up with her brother, Willie, who lived there as well. It was a three-story mansion that took up basically an entire city block located at 23 Nickel Avenue in New Brunswick. So this was about five blocks away from where um, where Eleanor and James lived. So I kind of want for Francis and James to get together because I feel like like James could use some some good fortune. He probably and... could actually. Yeah. Yeah. Don't they get together? Let's let's talk a little. I mean, you might change your mind on this. So I do want to talk about Willie, who lived okay. with uh, with Edward and Francis. So Willie was 50 years old, unemployed, mm-hmm. and was known to have a short temper. He spent most okay. of his time at the firehouse, and not because he worked at the firehouse, but he was just fascinated by the equipment that they had there. And So he was an arson? Well, he also apparently spent a lot of time playing with kids, and it wasn't described in a creepy way. It wasn't described in a creepy way, and I think that, like, people talked about maybe that he was just kind of, like, irresponsible and kind of simple, and I wonder if he was was maybe kind of childlike almost himself. Like, he just liked little kids, and, like, little kids, you know, like, they get into fire trucks and things like that. I don't know, like... What it it wasn't described in like a weird way, but people also said that he had a short temper. And I guess that he would get like taunted in the street sometimes. People called him Nutsy Willie. Nutsy Willie? Nutsy Willie, which is very suggestive <laughs> in my mind. But yeah. I'm just, I don't know if that was what they yeah. meant back then. Um, so He had large yeah. testicles. Maybe. So because of this... And because, like, he was kind of, you know, like, all over the place and not quite acting what a 50-year-old fifty year old man would, uh, a trust fund had been set up for him by Francis and their other brother, Henry. And 
When Edward and Francis got married, Edward was placed in charge of overseeing this trust fund. Okay. As the man of the house. So Francis also claimed to know nothing of the affair. She said that that night um, she ate dinner with Edward and her brother Willie um, like around 7.30 p.m. and, and took off. So right around the time when Eleanor left her home. And they knew that that he was going to pick up Eleanor's payment. They knew all about that. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't uncommon for Edward to leave right after dinner as well. So Edward's daily routine was to wake up. He would eat breakfast with Francis early in the morning. He'd work in his study all morning and then call on parishioners in the afternoon. So probably when he was meeting up with Eleanor. And he'd return. Yeah. Bang Eleanor. Yep. He'd return home for dinner at 6.30 p.m. And then after they would eat with Willie, he would leave to go do more evening calls or attend meetings at the church and or bang Eleanor. Can you imagine? Like, it probably wasn't a fun life. He had to live with nutsy Willie. Yeah, I know. And he had like... What kind of a marriage is that? Yeah. I, I don't know what kind of marriage it is, but... So this night, of course, we know that he didn't return home. And at 2.30 a.m., Francis told police that she was worried and she took Willie with her to the church to see if he was still there. She was getting concerned. The church was dark when she got there. And so she knew that he was meeting Eleanor that night. So she went to get or like he was meeting Eleanor to to get her payment. So she and Willie went over toward the Mills home. She found that dark as well. And so they decided that they were just going to go home and go to sleep and pick up the search in the morning if he still hadn't returned. And then, of course, on the afternoon of, okay. of September 15th, she finally reported him missing, maybe, depending on the source. So, like I said, I saw in some places that they never reported them missing, but the one that I did find says that they they reported him missing in the afternoon. So, I don't know. Okay. But... Well. Francis also you know, claimed to know, yeah, she, she claimed to know nothing about the affair. And once the funerals were concluded, about a week after the discovery of the bodies, police came to the mansion and they picked up Willie to be questioned. They didn't allow him to tell his sister where, where he was going. Um, but by that time, Francis had already obtained a lawyer to help investigate the murders on her own. And her lawyer told her to expect the same okay. treatment herself. So he was like, get prepared. They're going to they're going to question you crazy heavy too but the investigators were apparently like incredulous at this thought because they would never treat a woman that way and they (laughs) they had already questioned her once very gently just two days after the bodies were discovered so they're saying that they would never ever treat a woman that way and question her hard but they there were some other suspects too and one of them was a younger less wealthy woman this was Pearl Bomber, the 15-year-old girl who discovered the body. So they what? they questioned her pretty heavily and her boyfriend, Raymond Schneider. They were suspects, of course. And during the questioning, Raymond relayed that on the night of the murders, so this is the night before he was walking with his girlfriend Pearl down there, he had been out in the area with a second man um, by the name of Clifford Hayes. Clifford Hayes had also dated Pearl at one time and did suspect that her father was guilty of incest and intended to kill the father. So, like, he's out with his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend who's looking to murder the father of his ex-girlfriend for being an incestor. 
Okay, wait, wait, wait. So the ex-boyfriend wants to murder her dad? Yeah, because he suspects that he's, like, raping her, basically. This is all according to her current current boyfriend, Raymond. So I don't know. Maybe they all work at the... You said her Kerman. Her Kerman. Her current boyfriend, Raymond. And the ex-boyfriend are out looking for the dad. And, like, maybe they're just all buddies. Maybe they all work together at the same place. Whatever it is. But he, he tells them that that night Clifford had actually mistakenly killed Edward and Eleanor thinking it was Pearl. Like, Pearl and her father, so maybe he was going to kill Pearl and her father, but, like, why was... It's just, it was, it's weird. It's very weird. But... Something strange is afoot. Yeah, but there had been a lot of pressure to catch this killer from the press, because the press are, like, going nuts over this whole situation. And the the police, like, the, the governor is on their back, and everybody's on their back about this, catching this killer. And so they're like, well, we've got this suspect here. So they arrested him on October 9th. And... And it's so weird because it doesn't explain the love letters or the cutting of Eleanor's throat. It just, it was strange and it didn't really fit up. It fit, fit in together, fit up. It didn't fit up. And so it didn't add up. <laughs> and and so, so this is the Somerset police in New Brunswick, but um, the Somerset police in Franklin Township, sorry. And then like Middlesex is where in New Brunswick where there's not as many wealthy people in in Middlesex as there are in Somerset. And so the citizens were going nuts over this. They felt that it was no accident that wealthy people people from Somerset would want to pin the crime on a poor guy. So of course. Yeah, so people are are crazy angry. There's hundreds of people calling for his release and the papers went wild with it. There was even an old timey GoFundMe, so just like a fund was created to help pay for this guy's defense. And when all this happened, just a couple days later, Raymond finally confesses that he lied about the whole thing to get Clifford Hayes out of the picture with Pearl. So Clifford was released because obviously he did not murder anybody. So, <sighs> yeah. All that was bullshit about him hanging out with the other guy? Yeah, just a bunch of bullshit just trying to get her ex-boyfriend arrested, which worked for a minute. But Okay. That, I mean, that, that makes a lot more sense than the story that he told. So Yeah, yeah, it Oopsie. does make a lot more sense. But you'd think the police would have been worried about it. Um, <laughs> and maybe it made more sense in the... I mean, I, you get these accounts and they're, they're from old newspapers and things. So things get weird sometimes. But in the meantime, the public and media mm-hmm. were continuing to just, just be wild over this case. And so hundreds of people were coming to visit this murder site. There were vendors setting up shop and like selling balloons and soft drinks over on the lover's lane. And t-shirts. Basically t-shirts. And they probably had a a calliope and or calliophone. What was it called? Are both accurate? Calliophone. Calliophone. Something. Something like that. They were like they're like, come and look at the murder scene. So this got so out of hand and people were trying to take as many souvenirs as they could. And by the end of October, the crab apple tree was literally a stump. People were just like what? taking the tree. Yeah. They just, just took home pictures or pictures, pieces of the stump or of the tree, turning it into a stump. Why the fuck? Isn't that crazy? 
what kind of thing? People were really fucking bored back then. I know. Because they couldn't watch true crime or listen. Like, they couldn't watch true crime documentaries. They couldn't listen to podcasts. And so maybe we would have been those people. I don't know. And they probably weren't doing, like, a ton of public hangings. And people were like, we need more. We need more murder. Yeah. So... Even James tried to cash in on the excitement, selling Eleanor's diary and some of the love letters that he found at his home to a New York newspaper. So he didn't even have his feelings hurt? Not even a little bit? I don't know. Like, that's... uh, It's in poor taste. Like, I get it. Maybe if you just found out that your wife was having an affair and she died and you would have mixed emotions there. And but mm. it just seems really gross to try to profit off of it. But he did. So I don't know. He still he still has his woodworking alibi or whatever. So the police were so- at what somewhat of a standstill until a witness came forward on October 24th. So enter Jane Gibson or Easton, depending on what day you ask her. And she told police that on the night of September 14th at around 9 p.m., her dog started just going crazy and barking up a storm. So she raised hogs and had corn on her farm near the lover's lane, and she assumed that somebody was trying to steal her corn. And so she looked out and she spotted someone in the distance, and she hopped on her mule, Jenny, to go track down the thief. So (laughs) she's on the mule. And as she's getting closer to the dark shadowy figure out there, she was surprised to now see that there was a group of four people near the crabapple tree on DeRussie's lane. And suddenly she heard a gunshot. One of the people fell to the ground and she heard a woman scream, don't, don't. Oh. Yeah. So then three more gunshots rang out. And she saw another person drop. And she got freaked out and fled, of course, back to her home. And as she was fleeing back, like fleeing back to her home, I kept, I did this last time where I said fleeting back. I need to stop using the word flee because I obviously can't handle it. But she heard a woman scream, Henry. Out. Henry? Henry, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And so, please. Okay, but this is after the shots? It was after all the shots, so, like, after the th- the three separate ones. So the first one, which would, you know, like, if you were making assumptions, would have been Edward, and the second one would have been um, been Eleanor. Eleanor. But she was shot, like, I mean, it was like a boom, 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 like, all around her head, basically. So it wasn't her yelling Henry. No, it wasn't. So police were super excited to have a break in the case finally, but they were a little bit weary. So leading Mm -hmm. up to this, they did believe that Hedward had been shot while already lying on the ground. And Jane's story had him getting shot while he was... Did you call him Hedward? Hedward? Is that what I said? (laughs) You called him Hedward. That makes sense to me that I would have said Hedward. So his name is Edward. Okay. (laughs) So they believed that Edward... The Hedward. No, Edward. Everybody <laughs> else was named Henry. There's multiple Henrys in the story. Three, to be exact. But, okay, so so Edward had been shot while already lying on the ground. And so, yeah, Jane's story, like, has him shot 
like getting shot while he's standing up. So that's that's a little bit weird to them. Um, and mm-hmm. Jane also told the story differently the second time she was interviewed. So at first she said she only saw silhouettes, but then later explained that she saw a car parked near the location. And when another car passed by, the headlights allowed her to get a good look at the group. She said that the group was two mm-hmm. men and two women. And one of the women was wearing a long coat, and one of the men had bushy hair and a mustache. A mustachio. A mustachio. A mustachioed man, if you will. I just like to say mustachioed. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, first time she's just seeing like silhouettes, and this time she knows that it was two men and two women. And so, yeah, so she she also was saying the second time around that she heard an argument concerning some notes before one of the women tried to run away unsuccessfully. The woman was dragged back to the crabapple tree and then shot there after that attempt. Oh. Yeah. And then Jean was interviewed a third time a little while later. And this time she added that she had gone back to that area around 1 a.m., because she had dropped a moccasin while she was running away earlier or galloping away on her mule or whatever. And when she returned, she saw a woman kneeling and crying over the body of the male victim. And she identified this woman as Frances Hall. What? Yeah. And continually while talking to the police or the press, Jane's story just kept changing a little Every single time she told it. So mm. Jane continued. I think she's a fucking liar. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So Jane continued talking and eventually she added an identification of Francis's cousin, also named Henry. Uh, but her his whole name was mm-hmm. Henry Carpenter. So this is different from Henry Stevens, who is her brother, cousin Henry Carpenter. So she identified him. And said that, and he, well, she didn't say it, but he did live two doors down from Francis. And okay. Carpenter did have a light alibi, though, that he was dining with friends and his wife at the time of the murder. His friends and his wife backed this up, that he was not there. Um, but Jane's insisting that that she saw Henry Carpenter there. And sometimes family and friends lie for you. Correct. Yes. So... However inconsistent, Jean Gibson's story led investigators to lean more heavily toward Francis and her brothers. So Francis had been acting a little bit suspicious. They discovered that three weeks after the murders, she had sent some of Edward's clothing to Bornets in or Bornots or something like that. I didn't look up how to say that. Some kind of place what the in, fuck does that mean? in Philadelphia. Um, sounds like a store or seamstress or something, but... She sent it to Bornots in Philadelphia to be cleaned and dyed black. So just having his what? clothes dyed black for no reason. Like to get ready for the funeral? Well, no, because the funeral was like a week afterward. So this is three weeks afterward, just like dyeing his clothes black. It's really weird. It's weird, but it's not like a smoking gun either. It is certainly not a smoking gun. Yeah, just very weird. And... They did start to look into Jane's story a little bit deeper, and Jane had a neighbor named Mrs. Fraley, who actually lived even closer to the crime scene than Jane did. And from her home, when looking out the upstairs bedroom window, you could even see the spot where it occurred. Um, However, they didn't know for sure if they could have seen the spot where it occurred because the crab apple tree 
was demolished by the time they looked at that by random people. So, and like they were like, <laughs> right. maybe you could see the crime scene. It didn't really matter though, honestly. It's not important. Mrs. Fraley, you know, like they didn't give her first name though, which was annoying to me because I was like, we know the mule's first name is Jenny, but Mrs. Fraley doesn't get a name, whatever. So, they interview Mrs. Fraley and she said that she didn't hear anything on the night of the murders. She also said that she ran into Jane the morning of September 15th, so the morning after this all happened. And Jane had made Jane made no mention of the incident from the night before. She said that there is absolutely no way that Jane wouldn't have told her because Jane is always extremely talkative and gossipy. Okay. So despite all of this, yeah, despite, you know, like the neighbor being like, uh, fuck no, this didn't happen. Um, the police just, just decided that they had the right people here. And so they continued to look into Francis and her brothers. They knew that Willie had a short fuse, and they did know that Willie owned a thirty-two caliber revolver. They asked Willie about the gun, and he said, well, I haven't used that thing in over a decade. And they inspected the gun, and true story, the gun didn't even work anymore. So it wasn't, it wasn't Willie's gun Clearly. that killed them. They were like, never mind, this doesn't work. But they just kept pressing on. They look into the other brother, Henry Stevens. So Henry Stevens was a wealthy millionaire, of course, along with them. And he had a ton of firearms expertise. He was an exhibition marksman before retiring. And they decided that he was the shooter, despite Henry living 50 miles away in Lavalette, New Jersey. And he even had an alibi for the night. But they were like, nope, Henry is the shooter because he was a marksman. So, yeah, that's what they decide. He shot all that distance. Yeah, he shot 50 miles. And so the police decided to move forward. Um, I think that they they put in there, too. Like there's there's other there's people I think that saw him. There's there's a lot going on here, but it just it's all circumstantial. But the police decide they're going to move forward. And on November 20th of 1922, they brought the case before a Somersville grand jury And over the course of eight days, they had 67 witnesses called to stand and give evidence. So there's people talking. What the fuck? Yeah. That's a lot. A lot of people. Um, So surprisingly, um, Jane's neighbor, Mrs. Fraley, was among the witnesses. And at the grand jury trial, or it's not like, you know, like at the grand jury hearing, She claimed that she heard gunshots around 10 p.m. on September 14th, despite what she had said earlier about not hearing them. And Jane Gibson was their star witness, despite her craziness. Of course. And so surprise, surprise, this didn't work out. The grand jury was like, there's not enough evidence here. We can't move forward. And the case is a standstill. So despite... 60 some witnesses it was just a bunch of gobbledygook just a bunch of gobbledygook according to them so no go and so this is where i'm going to stop for this episode and pick up again okay in our in our next episode episode lucky number 13 number 13 yeah all right so before we go I do want to remind everybody that we would absolutely love it if you are enjoying listening to this podcast. We'd love if you followed us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. We would love if you told your friends about us because we are still a brand new growing podcast. And we would love if you would check us out on social media. So you can find us at facebook.com slash 
facebook.com slush weird shit my mom says podcast <laughs> so no i and shit on facebook because they're a prude and you can find us on instagram at weird shit my mom says podcast and you can find us on twitter at weird shit mms pod and then also if you love us so much that you want to help us out with equipment and subscriptions and all the the costly things that go into making our podcast, you can go ahead and support us at patreon.com slash weird shit my mom says podcast. So that is all. I know you love us. I hope you do. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.